love is our our best defense against death and fear of death, you know, just like Frank Ossoseski says, you know, the only two questions that matter at the end of life are, am I loved? And did I love? And that's because love is what soothes us when we're scared. That's the only thing that really works. This show is called The Love Drive. And ever since I started doing this podcast in March, I feel like I have been doing a lot of episodes on sex because sex is something that I have experience in. And for the most part, sex is less complicated than love. I feel like... I have been shying away from talking about love because it's such a huge, mystical, complicated concept that we all sort of want. Like, we all want love. And I'm, I'm scared of talking about love because I don't understand it. And... Part of me also realizes that my life's work has been to sort of demystify love and to talk about it and to understand it and to look at it from different angles. And I feel like I haven't really been doing that lately because I don't feel like an authority. I don't feel like an expert. I don't feel like a guru. Thank God. But... I'm ready to dig in more, and I'm ready to explore this topic of love deeper and to get uncomfortable and to be curious about this thing that people have a really hard time describing. And actually, when, when I give free love advice and somebody asks me, like, what is love? I don't have an answer for it. So today's interview is about love, but it's also about death. It's about the relationship between death and love, and more specifically, our death awareness and its effects on our capacity to love. And here at The Love Drive, I, I like anything that can give me an opportunity to love deeper, to be more open, to be more vulnerable. Even though it's scary, I know it's what I want. And so today I'm joined by Jordana Jacobs, who is a clinical psychologist and who has done a lot of her doctorate work on death awareness and its, its effects on our capacity to love. So what we mean by death awareness is realizing our impermanence in this world and the impermanence of love. This thing that we want to be safe and secure is actually everything but. You know, when you make love safe, you smother it. And so our impermanence, the impermanence of love, the impermanence of everything in this world, when we realize and are aware of that impermanence, we develop a deeper capacity to love. Uh, 
Jordana and I also talk about the list, the list of the perfect partner and how that is actually a defense against love. She also shares with us exercises and ways for us to cultivate our death awareness so that we can love more. This is a very, very sweet and deep and gentle and warm interview. When I re-listened to this episode, I was sort of moved several times to tears, sort of like, you know, like quasi-tears, like a dampness in my eyes, really. And not a lot of interviews has done that for me. Jordana is smart. She is present. She is authentic. And she is a joy to talk to and to listen to. I think you're really going to love this episode. I can't accurately describe the relationship between death and love, but Jordana Jacobs can. My name is Sean Galanos, and this is The Love Drive. Jordana, could you introduce yourself, please? I'm Jordana Jacobs. Uh, I'm a clinical psychologist, and I study the relationship between love and death. When I tell people that I'm going to interview someone that studies the relationship between love and death, everybody gets really excited. (laughs) And then they go, yeah, but what does that mean? Yeah. And so I'm wondering if maybe you could shed a little bit of light on that. Sure. It's complicated. But I think if I were to sum it up in as simplistic terms as I can, I would say that the more that we accept and incorporate transience into our lives, the more fully we're really able to love. Impermanence. Impermanence. Which is a really hard concept for me. Why is that? Well... To embody that means like really fully living in the present. That's right. Yeah. And I am not so great at doing that. Mm. I live a lot in the future and I live a little bit in the past. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for me to stay present. Yeah, I think it's a it's a problem that the majority of people face. And it's, it's really detrimental to uh, how we love. Uh, a very good friend of mine, recently said um, that love is presence. And when we are either in the past or in the future and living our lives that way, then we're, we're, not, we're not present. And that, that is where we can really embody and feel love. And the awareness of our impermanence, the awareness of death does help bring the present moment into um, into our consciousness in a very sharp and uh, beautiful way. Yeah, if I, I don't think about death very often, mm-hmm. but if I start to think about the fact that I could die at any moment, then it, it makes this very moment- Right now. Much more exciting and interesting. Right, right. And, you know, I'm aware of, you know, there being a certain like cheesy element to that, you know, like this like YOLO, you only, you only live once, you know, like bring it to the now, but it's, that's our, our society's interpretation of 
the concept of impermanence that really has been talked about and thought about for thousands of years in uh, many religions, specifically in the Buddhist tradition. And I think a lot of, a lot of the work that I do now is in trying to take some of those, those Buddhist concepts of impermanence and transience and inter help integrate it into our uh, Western way of thinking. So when I say death, I really mean awareness of, awareness of death awareness of transience, awareness that we are constantly changing, that we are constantly aging. And it's my belief based on my doctoral research as well as, you know, a lot of theories that I've read and a lot of research that I've I've explored. The danger is that if we aren't aware of that transience, if we think that um, we're going to last forever and that our love is going to last forever, um, that that has serious implications on our long-term relationships. I think people think that their love, their romantic partner love will last forever. Mm -hmm. I don't know many people that think that they will last forever. I think that people don't consciously think that they're going to last forever. We all know intellectually that we will die. But there is, I believe, an unconscious wish for that not to be the case. And we don't think about our own death all that often because it's terrifying. So whenever thoughts like that come up, we uh, we off we suppress them mm. for the most part. We distract. We distract. Um, we deny. We distract. We repress. We dissociate. Uh, you know, there are many defenses that we use to manage our our fear of death. One of which is clinging to love, and that's that's the the problem that I look at in my research. One of the ways, one of the primary ways we defend against our death anxiety is by clinging to love. You know, life isn't certain, so we make love certain. Uh, and we say our partnership is going to last forever. We've found, we've found the one. Uh, there's a- Till death do us till part. Till death do us part. You know, but actually in that, in that statement is the suggestion that it will end. In death, it will end. So actually, I love that. I love that till death do us part. You know, if if only we could really remember that on a daily basis, I think we'd be in better shape. Mm. It's actually not that likely that you'll make it till death do us part, or I guess it's equally as likely as as not likely. Part of what happens is in this uncertain world, we make love more certain than it actually is. And there's a a writer, Ernest Becker. Uh, who wrote this book called The Denial of Death, who talked about something called the adult romantic solution. He said that in the past, man has had religion to comfort us when it comes to fears of our own uh, death and mortality. And because we're, we've moved much more into a secular society, especially as Westerners, we substitute uh, love for religion. So, God isn't the one anymore, our partner is. And love is something that's eternal and forever um, and that we can hold on to in times of tremendous uncertainty with, with the thing we're most uncertain about being death. Mm. I think that what happens is instead of accepting our own mortality and accepting that uncertainty, we cling to the certainty inherent in 
or not inherent, but we cling to the certainty in love. But in doing that, we're actually not seeing love very clearly and we're making it more secure and more permanent than it actually is. And what happens is then love loses um, its mystery and its uncertainty and its unpredictability, all the things that make it um, exciting and passionate. Yeah. I mean, I'm just reminded of Esther Perel. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what is it? Uh, Fire is, needs air. Fire needs air. Yeah. Yeah. So um, a lot of the work that I've been doing is is very much based on on her concept that fire needs air and that that you need that like mystery and you need that unpredictability and partnership in order for passion to thrive. Uh, the only thing is that I'm, you know, she talks about air as in separation and divorce and potentially having affairs. And I just take it a step further and I say that uh, the ultimate air is actually death and recognizing that you could lose the person you're with at any time. Death of the person or death of the relationship. Yeah, or, or death of yourself. Or death of yourself. Right. But death of yourself feels less traumatic because you're not left in pain. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that death of yourself is unfathomable to you. You have no concept of what that would be. On one hand, it's the scariest. And on the other hand, it, it means almost nothing. I tried to think about that this morning, actually. I mean, I thought about it a little bit. If I died today, w would I be okay with that? It's a beautiful question to ask yourself. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, a, it's like, well, you're already dead, so it doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. you know, well, like it depends wh on what, what, what you I believe think. happens after you die. That's true. I don't really, I haven't thought about what, what I believe happens after I die, but I, f I figure that this body expires and, mm -hmm. and maybe the soul expires also, and and I'm, I'm okay with that. And I'm yeah. okay with where, like what I've done so far. But, you know, I guess one of the questions uh, that came up while I was watching your talk is that someone, hold on, I might be able to actually tell who, uh, it was the question that they asked people that were dying, you know, the two most important questions at the mm -hmm. end of life. And they were... Am I loved and did I love? They weren't about the legacy that they left behind or mm -hmm. how much money they accumulated. Right. And... I have loved and and I am loved. I mean, not in, like, I am still seeking that partner, you know, that, like, special love. Right. The I, one. The one. The eternal one. You know, the amount of pressure that we put on that one. That's a lot of pressure. Tremendous. Enough pressure to maybe make them not want well, to be the one. It's the, <laughs> definitely, absolutely. And it's the pressure, in my opinion, the unconscious pressure to save us from death. Hmm. You know, it's not just the pressure of like marriage and partnership. That's all on the surface that we are maybe more consciously aware of, but unconsciously, it's the pressure for them to save us from death, which is a completely unrealistic ask. And I think really detrimental. How can they save us from death? By fulfilling our fantasy that our love will last forever right. and that that's going to go on. Even once we, even once we die. Once we expire. Yeah. I realized only yesterday that I was falling 
so deeply and unconsciously into the same trap that I've been identifying in my research, <laughs> which obviously always happens because it's me search, not research. But I, I it like hit me in the conversation uh, with a, a friend of mine named Zach Wolf, who really like helped me see it. I, I had to turn it around and saw it in myself. How in a time of uncertainty for me. It's a time of, of great transition for me, actually, uh, in starting a practice and in sort of leaving behind academia uh, and forging my own path. There, there's been a death of a former me. There's been a death of, a, of like a more childlike me into, um, I, I believe, more of a woman. And in that transition, which has been really scary, you know, because we do because change is so constant and there are little deaths that we're experiencing all the time but this one felt like a a bigger loss you know um but also a tremendous gain but i'm still sort of in the in the midst of it and i i upon reflection noticed how much i was clinging to the idea of of love um to save me and to heal me in that in that time um, and the amount of pressure I was putting on on that. This all happened yesterday? Yeah. <laughs> the realization sort of came to me yesterday that in the uncertainty that is occurring in my life right now, I was really clinging to the certainty, certainty, quote unquote, um, of love. And I think it's a very natural thing to do. It's actually love is our, our best defense against death and fear of death, you know, just like Frank Ossoseski says, you know, the only two questions that matter at the end of life are, am I loved? And did I love? And that's because love is what soothes us when we're scared. That's like, that's the only thing that really works, you know, that may be like watching the office on repeat. <laughs> and a pint of ice cream. <laughs> and a pint of ice cream. But that's right. all temporary. Right. You Including know? love. Yeah, Exactly. So it's very natural to look to love in times that we're scared, um, in times that we're uncertain, with the greatest uncertainty being around mortality. But you ha we have to be aware when we go too far, when we're relying on it too heavily, and when that does ultimately put too much pressure on the other person to um, fulfill our, our own needs right? That's, it's much, much more a love based on attachment than a love based on really looking at the other person and really loving the other person for who they are. Right. Instead it's what, much more based on us. What and they're going to give us. Exactly. Yeah. I have a friend who recently I've been posting a lot about looking for the one mm -hmm. and how, how I have a list. You have a list. I have a list. Yeah. And, and, and I'm actually distilling the list into uh, va values. Less I'm very curious about the about the list. Uh, people will really want to know about the list. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I've, I've talked about the list before, but my friend also has a list, mm -hmm. and and he thinks that it's you know it's a block, it's a it's a defense mechanism that is actually preventing him from meeting somebody, and he is concerned that he's actually not really looking for true partnership, but he's looking for a woman to come and save him. Yeah from his pain, from his misery, from yes. the day-to-day -day boredom. Sounds like a wise, wise friend. He is a wise man. You know, I I would say that, because you asked me earlier if I had a list, and 
Um, at at one point I did, and I, but I do ag- agree with your friend that it actually is more protective, and it's it's thinking about love in a way that I don't that I think is maybe detrimental again in this, like how can somebody serve me? How can somebody fulfill my needs? Um, you know, do they fulfill all of my needs? And then everything's going to be okay. Rather than thinking about love as um, something that's much more other focused. You know, I think if we really feel like many of our needs are taken care of. I mean, you you probably know uh, The Art of Loving by Eric Fromm. No. Oh, it's a phenomenal book. Um, and he talks about what's, uh, what he calls a need-free love. That, that's the only kind of love that is, um, that is more, it's a, it's the kind of love that's more genuine and more real. And it's when our needs have been met. And so we're actually able to give in a certain way. And, and I think at the base of all of it, if you were to look at your list, you know, like these are all the conscious things you're looking for. And unconsciously, you know, our greatest need is our, for somebody to make us feel better about the fact that we're going to die, <laughs> you know? And if we can fulfill that need in ourselves, if we can accept mortality, if we can accept that that is inevitable and that no one's going to save us from that, we don't have to grasp in the same way that we would otherwise for somebody to fix that. It's not possible for it to be fixed. It's going to happen no matter what. So we just accept the fact that we're going to die and then we will find the love of our life. Is <laughs> I, that- mean, I think that we'll be able to love in a way that is much more giving, much more rich and much more other focused. Mm. And, and I think, I mean, will you find, you know, that's what, what I take issue with the one, the idea of the one for so many reasons, but one, one reason is that, um, I think we think of the one as this forever thing and somebody that's going to save us, right? They're just another person, just another person that needs or wants to be loved for who they are. Another person doing the best they can. Doing the best they can. With what they have. Yeah. I'm reminded of a quote that I'm going to pull up because uh, it's very relevant to, oh, it was basically, it was about the list. It, mm-hmm. was, a, it was about that we're, we're not actually looking for someone who uh, is a rock climber, who likes camping, right. who is funny, who is right, smart, right, who right. all that stuff. We're looking for someone uh, that we can be safe with. Absolutely. We're actually looking for safety. But we're looking for excitement as well. Safety is just that, you know, this is again an Esther Perelism, but we need to balance the safety and security uh, with the passion and excitement and unpredictability. If we have too much of one or too much of the other, uh, we're in trouble. So what do we do? So this is what I think we do. I think that that over time in many long-term relationships, we we cling to the safety and security of our partners uh, because we're so afraid, unconsciously at least, so afraid of death. But for a lot of reasons. And, you know, I, I actually just met Bobby Klein last night. Do you know who he is? He's um, like a healer from Tulum. And he was talking about something that I've, I've been thinking about a lot recently, but that, you know, like life is, is really hard. And if your relationship doesn't support you, 
um, and doesn't make you feel like safe and comfortable, then it's probably not going to work because life is hard enough as it is. You know, we really need each other in this regard. We need to support each other through how challenging life is, right? But what happens is I think we rely too heavily on that support and that security and we sort of suck out some of the the passion and excitement in our partnerships because um, that unpredictability can be scary. It can threaten to ruin the very stability that you've come to rely on. That makes me sad because I don't, I, I just think of me not having someone that I can lean on. Well, that's why I think it's it's a balance, you know? And I think one of the ways to create that balance in partnership, you know, when you find yourself in a situation where where you're leaning too much or you or you feel like there's so much security and you, you feel like you really have that person, you know, sort of again an estoparellism. You can't think that you have them. You need to remember that they're on lease. Yeah. One way to do that is to to really incorporate transience and impermanence into your relationship and be be aware of the fact that you're not always going to have them. And that even though you've created this sense of safety between the two of you, that is very important to like live and love. The other side of it is that, is that it's not going to last forever and that it's not as safe or secure as you've made it seem. That's a risk that I don't think people spend a lot of time thinking about is the fact that their their partner could just walk out the door right. at any moment because they're a person and they, they get to choose whatever is right for them. And sometimes exactly. that relationship isn't right anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And even if they're not going to do that, you know, even if you're convinced they're not going to do that, which you can never really be convinced of, but people feel so solid and secure, they could still die. They could still die. They could still die. And you could still die or something could happen that really sort of like threatens your mortality. And, you know, I, I just read When Breath Becomes Air, uh, which is about a neurosurgeon who got cancer. A lot of it is about his relationship with his wife and his wife in the epilogue, he ends up passing away. And his wife ended up saying that um, cancer was the best thing that ever happened to their, to their marriage. You know, and a lot of people, when, when they're reminded of their mortality and reminded that it's not going to last forever, there's this renewed sense of the preciousness of, of the love that you share. Last, last episode was all about cheating. Mm -hmm. I just kept on running into people that were, were having affairs. Mm -hmm. And so I did more reading by Esther Perel's stuff. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's a, sort of a, like a pivotal... Quite an icon. Yeah, in this yeah. particular conversation. Totally. Uh, and most cheaters don't leave their relationship. Mm -hmm. Or when there's uh, an act of infidelity, most people stick it out. And so she likes to say, okay, so this marriage is over. What would you like to do with your other, your next marriage, mm -hmm. the second marriage? Right. And so oftentimes a traumatic experience allows people to, to sort of refocus what's important in the relationship. Yeah. An experience of of the threat of loss. Yeah. They like got a taste of it. Yeah. A real it's, taste. It's a near-death experience for a relationship. Yeah. Cheating. Okay. So now we know how death awareness can affect your ability to love. Mm -hmm. How do we get more death awareness? <laughs> 
So um, there are a couple of ways that I would suggest. One is I I offer um, a number of sort of like death awareness exercises. One, you know, is something called a, a death prime. And a death prime is something that's used in the psychological literature to bring thoughts of death from your unconscious into your conscious awareness. It could be as simple as setting an alarm on your phone that says something every day to you. I mean, I had something that said, uh, tomorrow is promised to no one. Um, and it, you know, came up as an alarm on my phone every day at 10 o'clock in the morning. Because if, if we're not pretty consistently making ourselves aware and conscious of impermanence, it's pretty easy to allow our defenses to push that away because it's scary. We tend to think that we have a long life. Yes. So we we can go, I'll think about it later. Exactly. Exactly. Until it's too late. Exactly. <laughs> There's also an app called We Croak. Um, nice. That I don't think it's like a great app, but it does send you reminders five times a day that you're going to die. And it's based on this Bhutanese concept that we have to think about death five times a day in order to live fully. Mm. So you can do that. There's also, um, I think meditation is a really great way to access um, awareness of impermanence. You know, a very simple meditation is one where you focus on every out breath as if it's your last. Oh, wow. I find that to be uh, really actually quite powerful. If you really sit and you really get into that space, I mean, it can be pretty scary. You have to be brave to do a lot of these things, actually. I mean, it's our greatest fear as human beings, and we never talk about it. It's not public speaking? <laughs> it's not public speaking. Really? I mean, that's consciously okay. our greatest fear, but unconsciously, yeah, it's it's definitely mortality. Wow. Yeah. Are there people that are just less scared? Yes, but I think those are the people, I think the people that are quote unquote less scared either never don't think about it and are so well defended against their anxiety. That That's they, me, by the way. That they don't, they're not afraid, quote unquote. Um, and it manifests in probably a lot of a lot of ways. There, you know, one might be this like fascination with love that you have. Who says who? <laughs> And what about risk? And the one, you and the know? one, yeah. Because um, I, I, that is, as I've mentioned, like one of our prime ways of defending against death. I mean, it sounds like you've made quite a career out of it and made sort of uh, part of your life really dedicated to this, this, not only the search for the one, but also a quest to understand love. Sure. You know? Um, but there are other ways we defend against death, um, which we can get into. We'll get into it after we okay, go through keep going the, the yeah, list. The so death awareness. So exercise. death awareness. So uh, the meditations for me, probably the most powerful way um, to sort of understand my own impermanence experientially, because I just spent a lot of time talking about this intellectually, but really feeling it is very different. Um, and I personally haven't had any near death experiences, um, but in doing silent 10-day Vipassana meditation retreats. Have you ever heard of those? Yeah, I just had to get off of a list. to. I was on a wait list for one in Montreal. But, oh, really? Yeah, but, it, but luckily, thank God for me, I've had another commitment come up that preventing me from doing a Vipassana. But you're thinking about doing it. I'm thinking it. about it, and it's terrifying. It's terrifying. 
Yes, it's terrifying. I think it's as close as we get as I've ever gotten to the psychic experience of, of death. It's complete silence, pretty much complete isolation. I mean, you're around people, but you're not communicating. You're not even really supposed to... Look people in the eye. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean... You're saying like maybe I'm not so afraid of death, but you're terrified of Vipassana. I think you're probably terrified of Vipassana for similar reasons. Quite possibly. To or I just don't want to be with my thoughts for 10 days. That's true too. <laughs> I mean, that's... That's true too. And my therapist and I talked about how I'm petrified of being, of being bored mm-hmm. or not engaged or uh, entertained. Yeah. And to observe your mind uh, in that state would be is terrifying but also fascinating there's an opening for christmas new year's 10 day vipassana it sounds like a really challenging time to be at vipassana do you think so because of connection and people and holidays i've thought about doing one over the holidays and like i think that would be yeah i think that would be hard but it depends on who you are Okay, so Vipassana. So Vipassana is a, is a great way, uh, specifically though, because so much of the work of Vipassana is paying attention to the changing nature of your body and sensation in the moment. So when you are aware of, acutely aware of sensation, and you know, right now I'm not acutely aware, I just like have this body and I have the uh, perception right now that it's solid, you know, but if you're really paying attention to it after 10 days of silence, you feel it constantly shifting and constantly changing. And when you feel your body shifting and changing constantly, you become aware that you're shifting and changing and aging and aging and aging and dying and dying. And the moment, there have been moments of Adam Vipassana where I've really become aware of the transient nature of my body, that it's not going to be here forever, that I'm consistently moving towards a path of, of like sort of decomposing. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it, it sounds scary, but really what comes from that is absolute bliss, and absolute freedom. bliss and freedom and love. When you are not so attached to this idea of a self and when you are not so, in not being attached to the idea of the self, all of the needs that you feel you have, that list, suddenly dissipates. Doesn't matter anymore. Doesn't matter. And what's left is love that you're able to give to the other, not just romantically, but across the board. But I I do think that There's more love that could be had in this world in general, no question. But I do think that we're at this pivotal point in in romance and in relationships where this sort of Buddhist idea and this Buddhist tool can be used to help us. Yeah. So while while my research does really focus on romantic love, and and that's why, because I think I think we're sort of in trouble. Romantically, I think like long-term relationships are really in the modern day uh, facing more challenges than they ever have before. What I'm talking about applies to love in in every way, shape, and form. Platonic, familial, yeah, everything. Yeah, it's it's our act. We are able to access um, c- true connection and true love more when we recognize that we're impermanent. The equation that I that I talk about in my talk is that 
is sort of, and I came up with this actually in my in my last Vipassana retreat. I like, you're not allowed to write anything down, you know, but I, I sort of rehearsed in my mind this realization that love without death in mind, love without impermanence in mind is really just attachment. And it's it's based on our needs, but love with death in mind, love plus death. So love minus death equals attachment. Love plus death equals true love. And by that, I mean it's love based in the truth that we're all gonna die <laughs> at some point and that everything is constantly moving and shifting. And that allows for like a richer, deeper, again, the Eric from like need-free love to emerge. And that's what we need in our partnerships. I love need-free love. Need-free love. Read that book. This is episode 31 of The Love Drive, which is pretty amazing. I've been putting out one episode since I started. I think there was just a few weeks where I didn't and I took a break. And in those 31 episodes, uh, guests have been recommending amazing books. And I read a lot of books and I have, uh, this is where I get a lot of my knowledge, where I get a lot of the inspiration for some of these uh, these interviews and the things that I talk about. And so I want to make those books available to you. So I have a page now on my website, uh, which is going to be where I, I put all of the resources, all of the books, all of the recommendations, the courses, the meditations, all this stuff. I'm going to put it all on one page. So if you're interested, just go to thelovedrive.com and there'll be a page there. By the time you listen to this episode, the page will be there. It'll probably be called Resources. Also, I just want to take a moment to thank you for being here for me, really. Uh, your support means a lot to me. I, I know I say that at the end of every episode, but it really does. I'm a very critical person, and I try not to be critical of other people. And so oftentimes, I just turn that criticism onto me. And it's hard sometimes. And what really makes a difference is when I hear from you, uh, whether you send me an email or a message on Instagram at the love drive uh, or an email to Sean at thelovedrive.com. That's S H A U N. Uh, those messages really, they mean a lot because this work is challenging and I uh, live alone and I work from home with my dog and that's it. I just wanted to thank you. So thank you. Back to the interview with Dr. Jordana Jacobs. Uh, we're talking about specifically things that you can do to cultivate your death awareness in order to love more deeply. My name is Sean Galanos, and this is The Love Drive. So Vipassana, daily death primes, um, or death awareness exercises, but there's also um, Tantra. So there's a lot in Tantra, and I'm not, I don't claim to be like an expert on Tantra, but I have started reading a lot more in the past year 
about tantric practices, specifically um, the use of of the orgasm um, as a way of practicing for death, because an orgasm you need to really let go and surrender, and that process of letting go and surrendering and like not holding on and and um, you know it, it's actually quite similar to what people describe as they move towards death. You have to be present. You have to be present. It's really hard to orgasm when you're in the. That's future. true. That's Very true. Hard. In fact, you. It's real. Yeah. I don't know if it's I possible. Thought, I'm not sure. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. And isn't the there's the concept of uh, orgasm being sort of like the closest thing that you can get to death without actually dying? Yeah. Yeah. Or psychedelics. Or psychedelics. So psychedelics is another another pathway. Um, you know, often in a psychedelic experience, you experience like the disillusion of the ego, hmm. um, and you experience like a sense of oneness. So basically all of the things that I'm I'm sort of talking about are practices that don't necessarily have to be related to death, right? But they have to be about letting go of of the ego, letting go of this concept of the self that we've clung to so dearly. You don't have to go bungee jumping. No, but that actually probably would be effective too. Another book, Stealing Fire, talks a lot about near-death experiences um, as a way to to really open you up and that some thrill seekers, you know, like with bungee jumping, are you a thrill seeker? Yeah. Rock climbing. Okay. And, yeah, yeah. 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 So like that, that's probably on some level, you sort of walking that line, that line of safety and excitement. Right. It's really scary sometimes, but it probably brings the present moment sharply it, to the forefront of your mind. It, there's it makes nothing you, else I can there's do. nothing else you can do. I'm trying to not die. Exactly. I hope my mom doesn't listen to this episode. No, but like it, I think that's, I think that's real. That's, that's a big reason why uh, people do these extreme sports. It brings them to the now because you can't think about anything else. So fun. Not for me. <laughs> so I'd prefer to do a 10 day silent right. meditation retreat than ever bungee jump or, or jump out of a plane or anything like that. That's right, not right. my, I like to push boundaries mentally. Right. <laughs> That's scary to me. Yeah. I'd much rather we all, we all have different vehicles. We all have a di different paths. Um, but in the end, I think there's simultaneously the fear of death, uh, but also an innate drive to, to understand our existence. Right, we're meaning-making creatures. We we want to understand it and sort of uh, come up against that that great unknown. And I think that if we push ourselves just a little bit and just a little bit more, and do it consciously, because I don't know if if you were rock climbing or doing these things with awareness that there is probably a part of you that's doing it because you're curious about mortality. And be, have you been not until now, right? So <laughs> So to do, to start to do some of these things with that conscious awareness and to think about how it's pushing you and, and really integrate that into your practice, that could be for you uh, one of the ways that you integrate death awareness into your life. I love that. I can just keep doing the thing that, totally. that makes me happy. You just have to think about it though. I have to be and aware. not make it, because the reality is so much of what we do, at least according to the research and according to the theory is because we're afraid of death. We just don't think about it consciously. Yeah, there's a big movement to being more mindful. I feel like I do a lot. 
of to be more mindful. No, I just do a lot of mindless stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm trying to be more mindful. And I also know that awareness is, you know, the first step to identifying a behavior that you want to change is, mm-hmm. you know, you have to be aware of the thing. Yeah. But I think that nowadays with social media, there's a lot of distraction. Yeah. Because life can be uncomfortable. Yeah. It's easier to just get to like dive into my phone than it is to to be in the present moment. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but it's really detrimental. And it's it shuts us down. And we're not as open or as aware, lovingly aware. We're not as lovingly aware when we hide from the pain of the truth that we will die, you know, and not as lovingly aware as when really when we hide from pain at all. Yeah. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. <laughs> but but if you think about it, like even in this moment, I mean, we already sort of touched upon this, like in this moment, in the connection between you and I right now, we're looking at each other. Very much so. This is not going to last forever. Your body is not going to last forever. My body is not going to last forever. We're at this moment right now. How crazy is that? It's pretty cool. <laughs> it's a great moment. It's a great moment. And right? it's going to end. And it's going <laughs> to, it just ended. That moment just ended. But I have found at least, even in this moment, there, there's a certain charge and elec- electricity that um, I feel when mortality is really brought up. And when you're not just talking about it intellectually, when you're really reflecting and feeling it. And when I've given talks in the past, and I do sort of an experiential exercise. I have a few of them that I do to help people really feel. Uh, one has to do with imagining. I have people lie down. Uh, one person lie down and one person sit up. And it's better if they don't know each other. And they hold hands. And I take you through a guided meditation where if you're lying down, you imagine that you're dying. And if you're sitting up, you imagine that somebody you love is dying. Either way, you're saying goodbye to someone you love. And, you know, I wrote this meditation I, I, thinking I, I want people to be able to experience what I'm talking about, not just hear it, but not knowing the kind of effect it would really have. And people cry a lot. People leave and call their mom, <laughs> you know, it's a lot of like leaving and calling their moms. Um, but most significantly, actually, is that in a room of you know 50 some odd people however many are there the room feels different people are exponentially more present exponentially more aware and exponentially more connected with each other people feel deeply connected with the person they even they do the exercise with in fact i had one person come out of it and ask the person out that they did it with which to me is just more proof that being aware of this of mortality just makes us more connected and really want to love i mean that ex- exercise to me seems like something that would make you feel very vulnerable yes and anytime i do any exercise where i am vulnerable in the presence of a stranger mm-hmm. i immediately feel more connected to them right and so this is a version of vulnerability where I'm vulnerable to the fact that I'm going to die. Exactly. Which is our fundamental vulnerability. That's the ultimate. It's the ultimate vulnerability. 
every other vulnerability is based on that vulnerability. Sure. I'm going to get hurt. Yeah. You're going to leave me. Exactly. I'm going to lose this thing. Right. Uh, that's at base our fundamental vulnerability. And that's why we don't want to look at it because it's the most vulnerable yeah. that we can be. But that's also why it's the key. The only other one that I would add is um, spending time with people that are sick or elderly. Which is something that is very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable for, for you. For me. For you. And I'm assuming you were going to say for a lot of people. For a lot of people. It's very, I mean, there's a reason why we have old age homes. There's a reason why like hospitals aren't like warm and welcoming places. You know, there's a quote by uh, this novelist, John Foles, who says that death is rather like a certain kind of lecturer. You don't really hear what's being said unless you're in the front row. And I, I love that quote for a lot of reasons. One of which is that I, I feel like the whole point of what I'm trying to do here is to get us to be in the front row before we're actually in the front row, you know, to get us to see and learn those lessons now um, rather than when you're 90 and and then you're regretful about how you've <laughs> you've lived your life because we can do that now. We can be in the front row now, theoretically, um, at least emotionally. And what I think happens, though, is we're so afraid of being in the front row that the people that actually are in the front row, like people that are that are um, older and closer to death or people that are sick and, and dying, we hide them away so that we don't have to face our own mortality. So, you know, visit your grandparents. <laughs> visit your grandparents. Call them. You know, I, I, it's really much more indicative of our own fears of mortality than anything else that um, we don't, we aren't connected as young people to the older generation. This all hits too close. Do you not call your grandma? No, she, yeah, no, I do not. She called me on my birthday. I didn't call her back. You got to call your grandma. She lost her husband who was in good health. Mm. He was the one who was, caretaking for her that's hard and he just died like sort of suddenly of ALS mm. and she can't she can't care for herself and so now she's being you know she's being put into a home we're putting her into a home mm -hmm. and she lives in Montreal I live in Montreal and I don't visit because it makes me uncomfortable yeah and yeah. she's scared yeah she's scared of dying and she's 90 and she doesn't do much Mm -hmm. And that whole situation makes me uncomfortable. And so you're talking about visiting your grandma and all I'm thinking about is how I'm not visiting my grandma. Yeah, but you've outlined, first of all, you're becoming more aware of it right now and aware of some of the reasons why you're not visiting your grandma. You know, it, it doesn't have to be something that you just feel guilty about. It can be a, a learning experience for you about your own fears of mortality and, and what that means, you know? It sounds like a great experience for me to get into i mean this is an opportunity it is it's an opportunity i got rock climbing and you got visiting your grandma i got visiting my grandma right so we all have different that's what i'm saying you know i can provide like a list of of things that that we can do but we all have different vehicles and really if we look deeply enough at a lot of the things that we're doing or not doing they're probably in some way related to death anxiety amazing that's so that's one way of reducing your death anxiety. Well, you just gave us like seven different ways of reducing death anxiety. Right, but I think you're right. It's it, you know, and this is also a very vipassana statement, but it's really about awareness and then it's about equanimity. So becoming aware 
that this is what's going on and then observing it almost as if, you know, it's, it's from a distance in a way that you're fascinated by it instead of becoming like overwhelmed with guilt or overwhelmed with fear or, you know, um, really looking at it and saying like, okay, now I'm aware. Fascinating. Right. Fascinating. You know, and what is that showing me about myself? What is that showing me um, about the things that I I need to continue to work through and integrate into my life? Not letting the feelings that come from it, being aware of the feelings that come from it, but not letting them overwhelm you to the point where you need to avoid them right, again. Right, Yeah, I mean, fear and guilt, uh, not super useful. <laughs> To me, not super useful. <laughs> they can be if you use them as uh, sort of like signposts, mm. you know? But but if we let them overwhelm us, then then they're not that useful. You're right. I had a therapist, uh, God bless his soul. He's not dead. I just want <laughs> God to bless his soul. His name is Dr. Jay Talkoff, and he is- Talkoff. Yeah. Interesting. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. The reason I got sober when I got sober, mm. uh, you know, sort of was a father figure for me for a while. I mean, we were we worked together for several years and provided that that figure that I, that I was looking for at the time. And I had anger issues, deep, deep anger issues. In my family, whoever won the argument was who yelled the loudest. Mm. And I didn't know that anger was a spectrum like any feeling, it's right. on a spectrum. Right. And so I would go from from not being angry to just being... Enraged. Yeah, fly off the handle angry. Yeah, yeah, Th- yeah. That, those are my two modes. Yeah. And so I'm much, I'm, I'm more able to modulate now, but one of the things that he said that stuck with me forever, or so far, because everything, <laughs> everything, <laughs> no yeah, everything is impermanent. Right. right. Uh, You're getting it. I'm getting it. <laughs> <laughs> it's working is uh, how much anger and what do you do with it? Mm-hmm. Because I didn't have a choice before. I'd, yeah. I would just get enraged and then I would feed it and I would just, I would react. Right. And now I could look at how much of the anger am I feeling and mm-hmm. what do I do with it? Do I sit with it? That's right. Do I write about it? Do I talk That's about it? It's very equanimous. It's giving yourself the choice. Instead of reacting. Yeah. And then I, sometimes I react and I go, fuck. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Right, right, right. Forgive yourself. Yeah. You're human. We're doing the best we can with what we have. Right. And next time you can do it differently. Right. So part of what your wonderful therapist did uh, was call all of that into your conscious awareness. So it was the way you were reacting was unconscious. It was just happening. Right. And it was happening based on old patterns from your family. Right. And so the same process is true of our death anxiety. I mean, we've inherited it from years and years and years of just being human because of our instinct for survival. Right. And so it's so deeply unconscious that the tool of bringing it from your unconscious to your conscious awareness, that's one major battle. And then the second battle is, is the choice. You know, just like with your anger, it's then choosing to look at it and to integrate it and use it in a different way. How much and what what do we do with it? Yeah. 
exactly. And I think that's different for everyone. I think that's different for everyone. Hmm. You've done a lot of research mm-hmm. and you've done a lot of me-search, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially on, on impermanence and the effect of death on love. And so I'd like to know, how has your capacity for love changed since mm-hmm. you've been doing this work? Such a good question and such a, a hard one to answer. You know, I think one of the things is that I don't have that list anymore. That list of this is how that, that person needs to be to fulfill my needs. I, I do think that I feel much more open to loving and really focusing on the process of loving rather than being loved and like getting what I need from somebody else. And I find myself slipping into that that space sometimes, the space of of needing somebody to fulfill these needs, like I, I think I did somewhat recently. But then I do feel like in in this practice or in thinking about this more, I, I have different tools than what I used to have to shine awareness onto onto that process, um, bring it to light, um, and then choose to do it differently. So I think that's one thing. I think a lot of this process and this research for me and me search is in part to help inform me about how to be in a long-term relationship, which I haven't been in in, a, in, a, in quite some time. I, I've actually been single for like almost five years, which is crazy. I think we have a lot in common. <laughs> I've been single for a long time. I've been single since my mid since my mid twenties, and I've been really afraid to be with a partner for the long term for for many reasons. But one of which is that I think it's really hard to maintain love and passion, and I'm deeply convinced that this is one of the keys you know if not the key <laughs> but i'm not going to not going to say not going to say that you know uh, wholeheartedly i don't know i haven't done it yet but i i want to be well practiced in this i want to really understand mortality and impermanence uh, so that when i am you know in a loving romantic relationship after that first year and a half where, you know, after the idealization phase of a relationship where you're not, it's not just all like passion. When, when you get to the real like heart of, of loving and when life like gets really hard (laughs) and when, um, that dilemma between safety and security versus excitement and, and passion really comes to a head, I want to be able to use these tools You said mm-hmm. that love takes hard work and to delude ourselves into thinking otherwise is extremely detrimental because the moment it inevitably does get hard, we disengage. Mm-hmm. And I've had three relationships that I think had the potential to be longer than they were. Mm-hmm. And I disengaged because I was scared because I didn't want to do the work. Mm. So how can we, how can we do the work? How can we do the work? I mean, I would say it's really about like commitment and choice, commitment and choice to do the work. You're not going to do the work unless you want to do the work. 
Right. You know, if you keep on searching for somebody with whom it's going to be less work. And I think that we have in our society, especially because of online dating, the illusion that there's always somebody else out there that could be better for us, right? And there's a lot of research on online dating. I did a, a small research project on online dating that was really highlighted the idea of choice overload and decision paralysis. You've read and all about all of this. I mean, I know about this in different contexts, but like, you know, they did the the study of if you have only six right. j- jars exactly. of jam, it's exactly. much easier much to Much easier to decide, you know? And we um, have, if if you're searching for the one, right? And that, and that one has that unconscious pressure on them to fulfill all of our needs, including our need to be saved from death. The best know? jam. The, be- the best jam the best there ever jam. was, you know? And there are literally, you know, thousands upon thousands of jams at our fingertips, you know? Um, you know, our people, uh, we're, really, we're really in trouble, you know? And the search can just go on and on. And that's why I sort of think that if the focus is placed less on fulfilling our own needs and much more on on really loving and giving to another person, we're I think we're probably more likely to stick it stick it out. What can I bring to this relationship rather than what can I get out of? Yeah. I mean, also, the best way to get is to give. Mm-hmm. You know, and so whenever I'm feeling down, I'll go and give, and then I I get something that I wasn't expecting. Right, and you know, I'm aware that even as I'm saying this, I I we do have we are not enlightened beings. Like we do have needs, you know, uh, and we are attached to ourselves, and we are atta- we do have egos, you know. Um, so it's it's not you know just like anger you were talking about. It's not an all or nothing equation. You know, it's not like you're either furious or you're not angry at all. It's not like you either have no ego and it's all about giving, you know, or you have you're very egoic and it's all about like what you're getting. I'm just saying if we can shift that that uh, meter more towards the giving and and less towards the ego. We also have to be really careful because there are people pleasers out there who give all they do is give that's true at the detriment of themselves but a lot of the times this is sort of tricky but a lot of the times that giving has to do with fulfilling their their need you know um and there are a lot of people whose ego is really fed by it's actually a version of narcissism it's called self-sacrificing self-enhancement um there are people that self-sacrifice in order to feel uh like they're worthy and like they're they're good enough and actually even better than you because i'm such a giver it's a sort of a martyr syndrome yeah and there's also probably manipulators that know that when they give, they get. Yeah. Yeah. So these these concepts are, they're, they're all blurry, you know? There's, there's nothing like hard and fast, uh, or we, would, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Right. Right. Maybe get assessed. Yeah. Maybe get, a, get assessed. <laughs> go get a psychological assessment. <laughs> or like me, interview experts 
in various That's domains right. Right, right, right. and get quasi-free therapy sessions <laughs> and coaching sessions out of the out of the deal. It's a good. It's pretty smart. It's pretty smart. Yeah, you've got. I built a good thing here. You did. I've got a you good did. thing it's working for you. <laughs> what I would like to do is have more conversations with men. Yeah, is it mostly women? Yeah, because it's women that are leading the that are having these conversations. Yeah. It's harder. That's true. I, I can't really like think of any men to refer you to. Well, there's Alan Deboton. That's true. There's uh this other Sam Harris. <laughs> Sam Harris. <laughs> <laughs> Not Ben at all. But like, does Sam Harris talk a lot about love? No, but he was talking yeah. about the the awareness of death as the doorway into to that death. way of being in the world. And yeah. I'm actually really quickly, what way of being in the world? The way of being in the world where each moment is precious and where you are aware of um, of how much you love people so, and how much they love you. Then yeah, he does talk about it. He does. Yeah, I guess he does. <laughs> Uh, so Alan de Botton, we bring we brought him up a couple times. Let's just sure. Let's go there. A good partnership is not so much one between two healthy people. Uh, in in brackets, there aren't many of these on the <laughs> planet. Thank you, Alan. Uh, it's one between two demented people who have had the skill or luck to find a non-threatening, conscious accommodation between their relative insanities. Which Love is, him. Yeah, which is basically like find a crazy that you can be with. Absolutely. Be crazy together. In a- what, what's key in that is an awareness of your crazy. You know, I, I think that if you're crazy, which like, like he says, most of us are in, in certain ways, being aware of the ways in which you are crazy or and shining that that light of awareness um, and then being able to talk about it. You know, one of the things he does say is, you know, that like when you meet people, you should say how you're crazy in the very beginning. People should know right off the bat. But in order to know that, you have to really look, right? Um, and some people don't do that work of of looking and understanding themselves. And I think underneath all the crazy the thing that we don't really look at is our fear of mortality. So I'm trying to get people to look there as well. We're going to start looking there. Good. I mean, I have to at least. You're already doing it. I'm You're getting doing there. it now. You just did it the last hour. <laughs> I want to know, how are you crazy? Because <laughs> you said we might get personal. <laughs> so let's just get a little personal. How am I crazy? Hmm. You know, I think that I feel like many of us, but I'm I'm very aware of this process for me. I feel a lot safer when there's certainty and when there's structure and that can bleed into being like pretty rigid sometimes and like not uh, spontaneous and very like left-brained, you know, very like intellectual and and I think I use um, I use that to to quote unquote like feel safe. Hmm. And the best experiences I've had in my life are when I can let go of that and just sort of live and be and experience my my right brain and really feel, you know. Because the the downside of that rigidity is that there's less openness to really feel what you feel in the moment. So a lot of my emotional work is about 
like sort of letting go of that, just letting go in general and letting myself just be. And <laughs> just to relate it again to mortality is that's the ultimate uncertainty. So it does it makes some sense to me that I would spend a good portion of the last four years of my life trying to intellectually understand that. But the times that have been most like blissful and liberating to me is when I let go of that intellectual understanding and I allow myself to really feel into it. The answer is to let go. Yeah. Yeah. For me, at least, probably for a lot of people, but yeah, for I, me. I let go recently. I was invited to a weekend uh, with someone that I don't know very well, but that mm -hmm. and actually is my neighbor in Montreal. Mm -hmm. And it's part of a community that is a bit scary to me. Mm -hmm. uh, the acro yogi, uh -huh. ecstatic dance totally. community, right? But you went. Because I'm very left brain and I'm uh -huh. a talker and I'm not so much in my body. And because I have a list yeah, and I don't go on dates with people that don't fit the list, it's a mm -hmm. very limiting way of being in the world. I still want to hear about your list. You'll get to hear about okay. the list. And... That means that I'm not, I'm like touch starved a little bit. Yeah. Because I'm not even, Me too. yeah, I'm not just going on dates. Me too. I'm not allowing, because I thought actually, I thought that in order for me to really call in that special person, mm -hmm. uh, I had to just be open to them. And, and when I'm with somebody else, I'm not available. And right. so I was like, okay, I won't be with anybody else unless they're that, you know. Unless they meet all of these criteria. Twin flame right. status. <laughs> <laughs> And anyways, I was invi invited to a weekend and I'd sort of forgotten about it. Mm -hmm. And I just asked if my dog could come and she said, I'll get back to you. Mm -hmm. And the day before she got back to me, I had kind of forgotten about it. Mm -hmm. And she goes, yeah, you can come. You can bring your dog. And I was like, well, you know, on Saturday I had plans to clean my house yeah, yeah. because I'm going to New York. And she was like, oh, okay. It sounds like you're busy. And then I went, I left. I didn't even, I didn't say yes. And then I talked myself into it. I said, Sean, just fucking go. Yeah go it's going to be fun it'll be different you're going to meet a lot of new people brave and it's, and it's the unknown we did a cacao ceremony uh-huh we did uh some ecstatic oh contact improv which uh -huh. to me is like terrifying uh-huh uh there was a small acro yoga workshop which was really fun uh-huh and it was it was amazing I had such oh, great. a great time. There was nude swimming. Wonderful. There was connecting with all sorts of people that mm -hmm. I normally wouldn't connect with. So I also need to be spontaneous and to say yes and to let go of the rigidity of, you know, I've been living alone since I'm 36 years old. I've been living alone since I was 22. Mm. And I just had a buddy spend the night a couple nights ago and he was walking too loudly. Uh-huh. <laughs> And I asked him to walk a little like, <laughs> I mean, granted, I live on the third floor. So there's, I'm trying to be courteous of the person that lives below me. Uh -huh. But also I was like, no, actually it's bothering me, not right. bothering my neighbor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I also, that's part of my crazy is to let go of the rigidity yeah, uh, and the list, which is also a form of rigidity. Absolutely. It's the most I know. rigid. Yes. <laughs> uh and to let go of uh, unrealistic expectations of people. And of yourself. And wow. bad. Well, we have the expectations of other people that we have on uh, of ourselves. I, 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 that resonates with me. That all of those things I feel as well. Turns out we have a lot in common. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so 
I think we did great. Do you do you want the list? Yes, I want the list. You want it on record. I just want to know. I mean, it doesn't have to be on record, but I I am just like curious. I bet it was probably pretty similar to to my list. Well, the 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 list is you know uh, rock climber, uh, athletic, lean camper. So you, me, you, me. Yes, uh, open to being open. Uh huh. So not also you. Also me. Uh, not open. Just open to being open. Hmm. Uh, funny, smart, charming, that I can let loose, like I can I can turn her loose into a party. And Which I imagine you can do, too. Turn me loose. Turn you loose at a party. Yeah. So so I'm I'm sort of asking you for it to highlight the fact that we we have the expectations of other people that we have of ourselves, and that if you your expectations of yourself are rigid, right? To a certain extent, very left-brained. So if you want to really, you know, like call in the one, you know, and, and really sort of broaden your capacity to connect with somebody, you obviously need to change the way that you think about yourself. You know, the lens through which you view yourself is the lens through which you view other people. So if you can start to work on having different expectations of yourself that aren't as rigid and that are more, much more open, then that will translate and the list, the list will change or completely disappear. I thought I was open. You're, maybe you're open to being open and that's the next step is to really be open. I wish people could just see my facial expressions throughout like most of this interview. But do you hear what I'm saying? Yeah. You're open to being open, but you're not actually open. You're, <laughs> and and I'm not saying that I'm I'm any better, you know. Right. I'm just saying that this is what I see. I think I'm probably open to being open too, and I'm working on being genuinely open. I'm so happy and a little concerned for my future at the same time. <laughs> As I was talking about the list, mm -hmm. I was also realizing that the person that I'm looking for is a lot like me. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I have experience with, right? As in like, if I look, if I broaden the search to people that aren't like me, that introduces a lot of uncertainty Absolutely, in my life. absolutely. That is terrifying. terrifying. Yeah. And so if I have this list, then we can keep going on road trips and we can, the way I've been going on road trips, we can keep doing the things the way I've been doing that. Absolutely. And also, like, if you really met someone that was just like you, I mean, you're wonderful. But really, there's something to be said for the fact that, like, there is a degree of balance and opposite that does attract. So you're looking for yourself and there's a sense of safety and looking for yourself. But often what we're drawn to, often what creates that passion and that spark is someone that's that's different enough from who we are, has a, has a similar, has enough of an overlap, but different enough to make it exciting and to help us grow and to help us change. If you find somebody that's exactly like you, you're never going to grow and change. Boring. And it's, it's going to be boring, which is one of your big fears is of being bored, right? And I don't think you're going to, you'll get maybe that safety and security, uh, but you're not going to get that other side of the equation. You're not going to get that uh, passion and excitement and unpredictability that happens when you have two fundamentally different people in the room. And I'll grow. 
Yeah. I think also why I'm single is because I know that I grow so much more in relationship and it's just much easier not to grow <laughs> until, until it hurts enough. Yeah. Until the fact that I'm not growing is actually painful yeah. and I'm being sort of left behind. Yeah. This is all a little too real for me. <laughs> if I didn't know you, if there wasn't a conflict of interest and I, and I lived in Manhattan, I think we would be working together. I think we'd be, it'd be good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So if you do live in Manhattan and you don't have a conflict of interest, where can we find you? Um, you can find me on my website, which is uh, com. You can contact me through there or you can email me at drjordanajacobs at gmail.com. Amazing. Yeah. Do you have a parting thought? I did my first social media Instagram post for Dr. Jordana Jacobs for my like professional persona on Instagram. And I chose a quote from Teet Nhat Hanh. That is, you must love in such a way that the person you love feels free. And I sort of think that that quote embodies a lot of what we've been talking about today. And that when we're so fixated on ourself and our own needs and our ego, which I think is all derived from a false attachment to a self, uh, that doesn't really exist. We can't really experience that need-free love. We can't. We can't love somebody in a way that they that they are free to be who they are. When we are so demanding that they be someone specifically for us, right? So I've always loved that. I love the idea of loving in a way that somebody feels free and unburdened by our stuff. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> For a list of all the books and quotes mentioned in this episode, go to thelovedrive.com forward slash EP31. EP is short for episode. The Love Drive is produced by me, Sean Galanos, with the help from Guilford Street Studios. We appreciate your support. If you like the show, actually, this would really mean a lot to me. If you like the show and you are an Apple user, please leave me a review on iTunes, either through your Apple Podcast app or on your computer on iTunes. Uh, search for The Love Drive. There's a review button. You can leave a rating and you could leave a review. It would really mean a lot to me. Next week, we're back with more free love advice. But I don't have, I guess, like a game plan to take it from like, I appreciate what you said and I think you're very smart. Like, what's your LinkedIn to being like, do you want to like grab a drink or like grab coffee or something? <laughs>